Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, I usually start off with that music, that drums, but these people came in the studio before me, and they threw me off, so I had no drums. But I got to tell you, uh, yesterday, I went on audition for a commercial, and it was uh, it was great because the, the breakdown said bald guy. And I walked in, and it was so great to see like seven other bald guys. And there was, a, no lie, there was a little person who was a bald guy, there was an Armenian bald guy, there was a Mexican bald guy, and there was me. And I gotta tell you, there's something about a bonding we have when we go out and you see a bunch of other guys who are follically challenged. I honestly think we should start a new club. Like, remember the hair club for men? I think we should start a bar called the non-hair club for men. And only bald people can get in, and we could do shots of minoxidil and drink some Rogaine, and it'd be, it'd be a great thing. I think that's my next business opportunity. The non-hair club for men sponsored by cooper talk anyway we have a great show today uh this gentleman he's an not only an amazing comic but an amazing writer producer director he does it all our guest is john ricci how you doing john i'm good steve how are you i'm good i'm glad you can make it down i, I told the story people i told the story earlier i years ago when i was doing a club in uh richmond virginia and i'm uh, williamsburg because you worked for anita fletcher yes and, many uh, times and it's funny because my friend joey callahan said because i said you were going on a show and she said he always said and you were anita fletcher's favorite comic i don't know if you know that but you were like her her favorite person yeah so you know from you're from Cincinnati right from Cincinnati right okay now now as a young child did you always want to be funny or did you always want to gravitate towards stage um i i think i was funny yeah i was funny from from a child from from the time i was a kid i guess because my family upbringing was very uh we're italian and so there was a lot of drama okay. in my family uh, constantly because we love an opera whenever we can make one out of any any day everyday occurrence, and uh, so I kind of very early on tried to be funny because there was just a lot of drama going on in my house, and so I found that that was a good way to sort of diffuse things and uh, came in sort of handy. Um, and that's where it really came from me for me. I was not like unpopular or had to keep, you know, stop guys from beating me up or something like that. It wasn't anything like that. It was really about my family life. Isn't that funny? And that's funny because you brought that up. Because I noticed like I know especially on Facebook, a lot of people go, Oh, hug a comic today, you know, comics were all depressed. I'm I'm the same way. I, I was popular. I mean I wasn't I mean, I'm I blind in one eye, so people make fun of that, but people make fun of anything. And I, it's weird that you say that too, because it's like people think that we're all these we get in comedy because everyone hated us. And it's it's not, I don't think it's that way. No, I don't think it is either. And I do think, I mean, I think there's some sort of place where it comes from that need to sort of go up there and, and talk to people. And and certainly for me, I'm much better at talking to a big room full of people than I am one-on-one. I have a very, um, I've been told many, many times, and it's very funny to me, and I don't, it, it sounds like a backdoor brag, but I've been told by so many people that I have a very intimidating presence because I'm very quiet. Like when I met, when I went to interview for Thirty Rock, I met Tina Fey for the first time at about four o'clock in the afternoon, and I went in and I was so nervous and I was dressed very much like I am right now. I had sunglasses on. I I tend to like armor myself up, so I was wearing sunglasses and I had a ski cap on and and whatever. And I said very little. Because I was sitting there thinking, oh, my God, I'm in the room with Tina Fey. And she told me later she thought I was going to murder her. She was like, <laughs> she was like, I've never been so afraid of somebody in my life. And my thing was I, I'm just very, very shy. And so I think – I do think that being a stand-up does sort of feed into that thing of like it's a way to get over the shyness right? without having to actually uh, sort of – engage with people on a one-on-one -on -one level so um i do think there's an there's something that's fed from that part of it so you were a kid and you were funny and of course the italian upbringing my girlfriend's italian so i know how when her mom calls it's like you can hear joanne upstairs going ma you know it's yeah. that same thing you're like oh could you keep it down i'm trying to watch tv yeah so in high school did you did you were you, did you go to college did you decide to go to college or what was your because I know you're from Cincinnati. Right. And uh, there, there was some comics back. I know Chip Chinnery and a few yes. other comics were back then. Mm -hmm. But at what point did, did you go to college? Yes, I did go to college. And what was your major? What did you want to major in? Uh, well, I didn't want to, but okay. I, uh, I was a pre-med. Because one day in passing, I might have casually said in the house, oh, I wonder what it would be like to be a doctor. And my mother was like, he's going to be a doctor. And... <laughs> And because she was paying the bills, 
that's sort of what I did. So I I was in the pre-med program and I, you know, got out of the pre-med program and I took my my MCATs to try to get into a med school. And But right about that time, I was just going, I just can't pull the trigger on this. I did fine. I was not. I was not outstanding in the pre-med program, but I was, I, I, my grades were decent enough. Where'd you go? University of Cincinnati. Okay. So, so you went there and you're in Cincinnati and, and it's medical. This funny thing about the medical field is I always, I always say like lawyers, you don't have to be, no offense to my lawyer friends. You don't have to be that smart. You just have to have a lot of time to study or and your parents have to have a lot of money. It's one of the two. Doctors, you guys have to be so damn smart because everything is so, the body's just so amazing that you sit there and go, okay, well, if you hit this aorta, yeah. it's okay, but this not. So but did so were, did you feel like you knew the medical stuff really good? Well, the first thing I, I thought about when I was in med school, I was like, wow, why did they have to name everything? <laughs> Like, couldn't they have just said, this is your arm and leave it at that? Like, did they have to go that far into it? Because it was, you're, I mean, it was so much. Again, I did, I did well. I was not an outstanding student in a lot of ways, but I also was doing stupid shit. Like, am I allowed to say? Yeah, okay. Um, I was doing stupid shit. Like when I would be bored, like in my genetics class, I was putting on a newspaper called the daily chromosome okay. in the room, in the room. Which was retarded because I was just kind of bored with the class and I didn't really want to pay that much attention. So I, there were many times when I did not apply myself in the way I probably should have. But that was also because at the end of the day, I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to be funny. I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be in show business somehow. I, I tell people all the time when I was a kid in Cincinnati, I used to watch the Carol Burnett show. And the, sh- and the Carol Burnett show would come on and they would say from Television City in Hollywood. And I would think to myself, there's a television city. <laughs> there's a city of television that's where i want to go isn't it weird how that's ingrained in us because i know for me like you know i live in burbank and when i was a kid i remember the tonight show from burbank and you know and i loved comedy as a kid and you sit there now and i'm thinking god you know something must have been subliminal that said come to burbank yeah. come to burbank yeah and it's just because it's true because i think the tv and like carol burnett i mean you know it was such a funny show and the shows were so funny and you just you thought wow like because you're in cincinnati i was in new jersey right near philadelphia it was when you're a kid it's so far away it's like yeah. you know going to my grandfather's house it was 11 miles seemed like a trip oh my god we're crossing the bridge and you sit now and you go 11 miles that's from here to you know hollywood right so right. so you got out of college and now when do you decide to do you decide not to go to med school or do you actually i decided not to go to med school and i went and got another degree in environmental controls and technology because I had already had, I I really took a really real, I took a a hard right on this journey. Um, I got this other degree in environmental controls and technology because it was a two-year program and I could do it in in one year. Okay. And when I got out of, when I was not going to be in med school, I was like, well, now what am I going to do? And there really wasn't a lot of options. So I went and got this degree and then I got a job at a company um, that did air pollution testing in coal-fired power plants. Okay. And I did that for about a year and a half, and it was the, without question, the worst job I've ever had in my life. And eventually we were, I was fired from it because they decided to downsize. And even though it was the worst job I ever had in my life, I was so pissed that I got fired. I'd never been fired from anything, and I was so angry and so mad. So then I was unemployed and I was kind of like not doing anything. And my friend called me up and said, I went to a comedy club tonight and I saw these comedians and I don't think any of them were any funnier than you are at a party. And I think, and they said that they have open auditions and I think you should go. So it was a club called DWI in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I went up there And there was a guy named Roger Naylor that ran it. And um, I walked in and I talked to him on the phone. And he said, you know, you need to have like five minutes of material prepared. Do you think you can do that? And I was like, yes. And he said, okay, well then, you know, get your five minutes material together and then come to the meeting. We have a comics meeting and then afterwards we'll talk. And I said, okay. And so I went to this comics meeting and I introduced myself and we they sort of had this meeting and they kind of talked about, 
you know, it was back in the time when that was like people were working on their sets and everybody was doing that thing. And so Roger was kind of like, Mike, you, you had a really good opening with this joke and whatever. And it was sort of a critique kind of a meeting at the end of which he said, okay, this is John Regie. Uh, he's new and he's going to do five minutes for us, John. And I had never ever done anything like that before and i just had to stand up and do it in front of the other comics in front of the other so comics. not even in the club no. i mean see that's weird because I mean, i've never especially back then I mean, like they, that never happened like in philadelphia you went and you signed up and you yeah. pick your name out of the hat so i mean it was in the club in the sense that we were in the showroom but everybody was just sitting around and then i walked up on the stage but there was no microphone there was no anything it was like the club was not set up for <laughs> the thing and I did, I did my time, and they were all – the thing that was great about them is they were a very, very supportive group. You might know a couple of these guys. Mike – do you remember Mike Irwin, Mike Sullivan Irwin? Did you know that guy? God, that name sounds so familiar. Anyway, Mike Irwin was there, and a bunch of other people were there, and um, I did my set, and then Roger said, "Come and I want you to come on Friday night and uh, try it. And I went in on that Friday night, and I – bombed <laughs> so so horribly and it began a long series of bombings and I, I they used to pay us two dollars and a beer that's what you got for doing your set was two bucks and a beer and i would get eight quarters i would get my my uh my pay in quarters and i would get eight quarters from the bar and we had a there was a a game at dwi that was like Pong in the sense that like you sat at a console and you looked down at it and it was called Missile Command. I remember it. <laughs> and so basically, if you remember Missile Command, you had a big ball and the missiles would come down and it would flash defense cities. And I would sit there and drink my beer and I'd put a quarter in and the missiles would start to come down and towards my cities and it would, it would flash defense cities and I would do nothing. I would just <laughs> watch the world blow up. And then when that was over, I'd put another quarter in and I'd do all eight of my quarters after my horrible set. <laughs> so, well, so well, your writing style, you was very smart. I mean, I know your writing style was always, and I remember watching like, you know, even at the improv and stuff like that, that you had a good writing style. Do you think the crowds just, they weren't getting it? Or what do you think the problem was? Or was just, you were so green? Um, back then, I think it was both of those things. I think I was trying to do what everybody else was doing. And that wasn't me. Like back then, everybody had props. I don't okay. remember anyone not having props, and that's probably not true. But in my mind's eye, everybody had some kind of fucking prop. You're sort of right, because because I, I used to do a character, a stud character. I came out with Banaka, yeah, and that whole act actually when I did Steve the Stud was a prop because yes. he was a character. But you're right, everyone had like yes. <laughs> just one. It yes. wasn't all like just my like friend. One. My friend had a my friend had a, did his whole show, and then at the end he had he he ended his show with Mr. Puppet, and he brought out this puppet, and he would fucking kill with this puppet. So I was like, I got to get me some props. <laughs> so I started putting all these props together and, and the props were kind of whatever. But even the props were like my version of using props. Like I used to do this thing where I would walk up on stage and I had somehow, I don't even know where I got it. I had an actual bowling pin. And I would walk up on stage and I would unzip my prop bag and I would take out this bowling pin and I would sit it on the stool very deliberately, like right in front of me. And then I would do my entire act and I would get done and I would take the bowling pin and stick it back in the prop bag and leave. And I would never say anything about it. Or I, I remember one time for a while I bought an easy bake oven and I would bake a cake during my set and then serve it. Um, so uh, at any rate, what finally happened was one night we were, we, my friend and I were going to an inner, we were going to go do a, a gig in, in Lexington, Kentucky. We had gotten, cause DWI then started kind of like being a booking agency too, and would send you out. And we were going to go do this show in, in Lexington. And, uh, he looked in the back seat and said, Oh my God, you don't have your prop bag. And I said, I didn't bring it. And he said, what are you going to do? Well, you have to do like 30 minutes, which we each had to do like 30 minutes. And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know whatever it is, it's going to be better than me using those fucking props because those <laughs> the props easy, are a disaster. The easy bake oven is, is priceless. Yeah. That's just so funny. It's just so bizarre. So I 
I uh, I stopped using props then. Um, but getting back to your question, I think it was a little bit that I, I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't have the skills to do it. And the other thing was, yeah, I mean, I don't think I was doing, uh, you know, for better or worse, I wasn't doing what a lot of other people were doing. And I wasn't talking about the same things other people were talking about. So when you start, you start doing that, you, you find yourself, you say, I'm done with the props. You go to, how did you do that? Do you remember how you did on that show th that night by any chance? I did okay. okay. I remember it went kind of okay. So now that's, but that was, but that was like six months or a year in. And that must've been a confidence builder because you got rid of the props and you did okay. You didn't bomb. Yeah. You, you had that little bowling pin as the right. crotch is gone. Right. So then where do you go from there? Because I know you started headlining a lot of clubs. How long did it take you to start headlining? Um, not terribly long. And again, I don't think that's so much a, a, such a, you know, a great comment about me as much as it is. It was that time in comedy when people were moving up very quickly and headlining very quickly because clubs were just popping up all over the place. But I would say, you know, a year or so I was headlining and um, – and it was going well. But again, it was also that time when you you could be like the kind of headliner that was a headliner. But then there were also those headliners that had a television appearance behind them. They had been on The Tonight Show or they had done a thing. And so these were, those were like the big headliners. So I was always in that sort of lower echelon of of headliners until I started doing some television. And then that changed as well. How did that come about? How did your TV, because you were, you know, you were still based in Cincinnati or had you moved? Somewhere? No, by then I had moved to Chicago. Okay. I, I decided pretty quickly that I met a lot of Chicago comics at DWI. A lot of people would come down, you know, Emo and Judy Tenuta and Stephen Leo and, Oh my God, just so many Chicago comics. And I started going up to Chicago, specifically with Stephen Leo, who are were and still are friends of mine. And um, I really started to discover the Chicago comedy scene. And I really wanted to move there. And so I did. And then when I was in Chicago, I started working pretty regularly at the Chicago Improv. And that's where that's where everything changed. That's where I met I met Dennis Miller there and I met Rob Schneider there and they became friends of mine and like Dennis said you have to come to California you just have to come and I did not want to leave Chicago I was very happy in Chicago I've heard that a lot from also from Second City people and actors when there was a lot of production there that it is it's such a it's such a home feeling everyone's and I've noticed like the Second City people and you know I know people have come on this this show they're all just cool they're all just nice people and i heard it was a very giving community chicago yeah. i'm sure like anything you think la and it's you know so what decided to make you move to la because everyone has like that point was there a certain right. point that said well, you got to move right well that was that point i mean i actually missed a step in this discussion of i also forgot that i moved from cincinnati before i moved to chicago i went to boston for about five or six months and that was heady and crazy because that was in the time of bobcat and lenny clark and uh Kenny Rogerson, and I mean these insane, crazy, heavy hitter new, uh, Chicago, I mean Boston comics that were so amazing and so incredible, but also very much, again, not my thing because Boston comedy was so like hit them over the head and keep them in, you keep them in control. So then I came back from there and then I moved to Chicago and um, what changed it was Dennis Miller saying you should come out. Like, honest to God, he honestly said, "If you," he said to me, "I might get a, I might get my own talk show, and if I get my own talk show, would you want to come out and write on it?" And it was that as as much as that. That was all there was to it. And I just started thinking about California, and uh, so uh, we moved there and. Um, and then that was it. I just never now, went back. Did you ever think that you would, from when you were doing stand-up, that you would have such a main concentration in writing? Because, I mean, or did you, I mean, did you ever think you'd get into, you know, sitcoms and stuff like that? Was that something that was ever you thought would happen, or you thought you'd just move out here? Because Dennis said you might write for a show, but you also get time, stage time and stuff out here. Right. I thought I was going to come out here and get my own sitcom. That's what okay. I thought was going to happen. And I came out here and realized that that was not going to happen because um, I uh, 
I was not, you know, my act was not something, it wasn't Tim Allen. It wasn't, it, you couldn't, you couldn't peg it as a thing and then built a show around it. And so it was, and also I'm terrible. I'm a terrible, terrible audition. I cannot audition if my life depends. Not for a part. I mean, I think I could, maybe I could do it now. I haven't done it in so long. Um, I I think I'm sort of a decent actor, but when someone says, here, read this and and read it with me, I'm pretty bad. Isn't it weird how auditions are? It's like you think about it. Because, I mean, in all honesty, if if you've been on stage doing stand-up, you know, you pretty much can act. I mean, that's my feeling. Because you're up on stage, you're you're controlling an audience, and so it's easy. But the same way, we can get in front of, you know, thousands of people, but I'm the same way. I go into an audition, and I always walk out going, man, I screwed that up. Because you sit there and you go... Wait a second, you know, then you come up to wait, I have to look this, I have to do this look or I have to say this, and it's just it's weird. I remember auditioning for the office. I auditioned for the office, I auditioned for the Steve Carell part for, with um Greg Daniels, and I remember it was supposed to be Steve Carell on the phone talking to somebody, and I had that whole panic of like, do I mime the phone? Do I <laughs> do I bring a phone with me? Like what do I do? You know? All the things that you shouldn't even be worrying about, I worried about. But um, I moved, I moved out here and then I, I just, you know, decided, I mean, things, things went well, um, as far as writing sitcoms, the way that happened was also very, uh, odd because I had no, what happened was Dennis got his show and he did. He was true to his word, and he hired me. Now, that was his... That was his late-night talk show that was on. It was syndicated through Tribune. It was not the HBO show. Right, okay, no, because, you know, some... I, God, someone was just on a few weeks ago. Nick Pakai wrote for that. Yes. Yeah, Nick was Nick just was on last announcer, week. Nick was yeah. Okay, yeah, oh, no, he was... Okay. Yeah, and he also wrote, yeah, but... Uh, so, so I was on that show, and that was, an ins- again, an insane writing staff. That was... That was myself... A great comic who isn't with us anymore named Drake Sather, uh, Kevin Rooney, um, Norm MacDonald, uh, Max Muchnick, and David Cohen, who did Will and Gray. I mean, it was this crazy group of writers. Um, and I wrote for Dennis, but, you know, Dennis did political humor, and I just didn't care were about st- political humor. Were you still doing stand-up, too? I was still doing stand-up. Okay. So, so- what I was doing was is I started to write longer form like desk pieces and then the desk pieces needed to be pre-taped and then they got to be like five or six minutes long and it i think it really was where i started writing narrative in a very short form version and um and i and i did that and then um that show ended and with absolutely no sense of what i was doing the Larry Sanders show was going to start about that time, and I really, really wanted... I had read for a part on it, and I actually got the part of Jerry, the writer that Jeremy Piven played. But through a series of circumstances, it didn't actually pan out. But I loved the script. I loved the idea of the show. And the show was now on and had done a season, and I just I was obsessed with it. It was so, a great show. It was so well-written. I mean, that's some compliments to you, but it, yeah. it, was, it was just... It, it was one of those shows... It's one of those shows that doesn't get, like, the props it should, because yeah. it, it was just... It was... I think that was, like, one of the early versions of just a hip show. Like, you right. know, like, there's shows that are... Okay, but there's shows that are just hip. You know, you sit there, and then in the beginning, they're hip, and then down the road, they're not as hip. The first Gary Shanley show, it's Gary Shanley show, was right. a hip show. Right. Because it was just different. Right. And it's also, I mean, really, the truth of the matter is, the other big part of it was, it was back when cable shows were not uh, eligible for Emmys. So we, you didn't get any kind of recognition, really. It was like this little weird show that was happening over in another part of the world. So... I wrote a I wrote a spec script. I didn't know what I was doing. Just wrote a spec script, made up a story, wrote it. Um, and I knew Gary a little bit. And my managers and his managers were the same people, so I got it to him. And I heard nothing at all. And, uh, and then I had done a one-night stand for HBO. 
that had gotten nominated for a Cable Ace Award on the non-televised part of the Cable Ace Awards. <laughs> uh, and then on Sunday night, they were having the televised Cable Ace Awards. And afterwards, there was an after party at a place on La Brea that isn't even there anymore called Campanile. And uh, my partner said to me, you haven't heard from Gary. You've been invited to the party. Put your tuxedo on, which was rented. Put your tuxedo on and go down to Campanile and see if you can talk to him. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And he's like, just do it. So I went down there and I and Paul Sims, who was running the show at the time, said, Gary's upstairs. Let me see if I can get him. And I waited about 45 minutes. And finally, Gary came down and said, I really like the script. I'm just worried that I know you wanted to be an actor on the show. And I'm just afraid that being a writer won't be that fulfilling for you. And so I don't know if this is a good fit and i said i just got to tell you i just i I just want to work on the show i don't care what i do i just want to work on the show and um that was on sunday and i got hired that wednesday wow see that's just um, it's it's always so funny when it's like that extra step like you know you don't want to go and it's so weird because you feel weird like i went to some event and someone said hey you know you should try to get some people on your show it was a robin williams thing yeah and i went with jeff martyr and and mark brazil sat with us and I wanted to ask Mark to be on the show, but it's it's not the right place, you know? So I felt like I sent him a message and he came on, but it's true. It's like, sometimes we just have to, like, for this, it just took that one little extra step that we usually don't like to take because I always feel like you're imposing. Yeah. That's, that's how I grew up. It's like, don't don't impose on people. You know, I just, I, I this is a completely sidebar, but I, I love this story so much. Uh, I'm doing this thing. I'm working on a project right now with Paul Mercurio. I know Paul. And so Paul uh, told me this amazing story. I don't know where this was, but it was in New York somewhere. And he was, I think it was in 30 Rock, but I'm not sure. But he was doing some kind of interview thing or working on something or had to be on something. And he said he came around the corner and Paul McCartney was standing in the hallway by himself, just kind of like standing there like whistling. And he is a huge Beatles fan so he just walked up and said hello and talked to him and was like oh you know whatever and they started talking about their kids they both have kids and he has like this 15 minute conversation with Paul McCartney who couldn't be nicer Paul Mercurio goes in the bathroom and he says the same thing he goes he said John he goes I was always taught just ask all the person can say is no so he walks back out there and he says to Paul McCartney listen I have this podcast show I I doubt you would have any interest in doing it but if you would, it, it, it honestly, we could do it over the phone. It would be super simple. And Paul McCartney was like, sure, I'll do it. So um, he's like, but I have to leave right now because they're coming to get me to do this thing. I can, I'd be ready. I could be available in like 45 minutes if that would work. And Paul's like, yeah, I have to go too. So Paul McCartney says, let's exchange information. God. So, <laughs> So... He gets Paul McCartney's cell phone number, and then he's on the phone on like Sixth Avenue because he's calling his studio. And the same, th- somebody's in the studio using the studio, right. and they can't get him out. And he's he told me he's like, Reggie, I was literally the guy that you see like in a like like the cliche <laughs> in a New York movie of somebody on their cell phone going, "Get them the fuck! I don't right. care if Karen is doing her show on gift wrapping. I've got Paul McCartney." Right. <laughs> so he gets he and while he's yelling for them to clear the stage. Someone phones in and he doesn't pick it up and and it's Paul and he played it for me and he's got it's so insane he's got a voicemail from a beetle on his phone and you just hear it's just like it's just like you hear like and then it's like uh yeah Paul it's Paul you know just wondering if we're gonna do the podcast I'm ready now so if you can give me a call back all right if you can't that's okay too we'll do it some other time then and you're just God. like going I can't believe this <laughs> like it's the that's one of those messages that if someone if, if someone like accidentally erased it you would never talk to them again oh, like, yeah. like if my girlfriend if I had a message from like Springsteen I'm a big Springsteen fan. If I had a message from him and Joanne actually accidentally, you know, erased, erased I'd be like, you know what? I, I think, you know, you still own that condo in New Jersey. No, right? I go one step for you. You could kill her. And there was, there's not a jury in this country that would convict you. They'd be like, it was Springsteen. Yes. You can't do that. That's great. I, I worked with Paul, God, years ago. I think I worked with him at the Last Laugh uh, the, at the Brown Thompson in Hartford, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Is he out here now? No, he's back. He's okay. still back there. Okay. So, so after, okay, you do the Larry Sanders. Now, how long did you write for the Larry Sanders show? I did uh, f- 
four years there or five, I forget. And which. then that went off air. Or? No, I did one more season. I left because um, I just kind of felt like I I thought that the season I was doing was going to be the last season, and then Gary kind of at the last minute decided he wanted to do another season. And I was talking to studios about getting into development and trying to do trying to do my own shows, and so I left a season before it ended. And now I know you you work for Family Guy. I did work for Family Guy. Now, how did that come about? It seems like you, your career you've, ri- you've written for very hip shows, and I think it goes back to your stand up. See it? If you never get rid of that bowling pin, right? You've been writing for uh, right for a lifetime. Exactly. That's what I've, been right. I've been on Full House or something. <laughs> um, uh, uh, no offense. They're coming back. No, just fine. I I know they're they're coming back. I know. What I'm going to about Family Guy. I want to talk about was it difference writing from live action like Larry Sanders to animation. Was it different for you when you went in, or how did how did you get the job, and how was it acclimating? Well, the way I got the job was I was in a deal at 20th, and uh, when you when you do these development deals for people who don't know, a lot of times what happens is is in simultaneously while you're trying to come up with a new show that maybe you can write and eventually do if you get lucky enough do a pilot and get it on the air the studio can assign you to other shows to work on. And Family Guy had just started. And Seth had just come out here from like Rhode Island and was like super green and didn't know what he was doing. As a matter of fact, believe it or not, they the, the studio 20 wasn't even 20th was not even letting him run his own show. It was his show, his idea, but since he had never worked in television before, they had a showrunner that they assigned. And I worked there, so I was I was there the very very first season, as they were as we were just kind of trying to formulate the show. But then I got um, my pilot that I was doing at the time. I can't remember what it was. Kind of heated up, so I left after like six or seven months, or maybe the first season. I guess I was there the whole first season. So now, what happened with your pilot? Oh, that didn't go. So there you go. <laughs> no. So now, now I mean, I, I always talk to actors who have had pilots, and it's always a recurring thing for them. Like every season, they have a pilot, and it's really. And for them, they're bummed because it's a pilot, but they're not doing all that work. Like for you, it's it must be like when you get a pilot, it must be a labor of love and you probably put so much time into it. I mean, it must just be, it just must suck when they sit there and they go, it's not going to be picked up. I mean, how, how do they tell you and how do you deal with it? Um, they generally uh, tell you uh, by not telling you. <laughs> what generally <laughs> happens is when you hand it into the network, uh because you almost move, you almost always move through a studio, and then the studio is the conduit between you and the network. So, um, you usually what happens is you hand it in. You know, the truth of it is, Steve, is that you when you go into it. At least I do. I've been doing it so long now. I keep saying to myself, "Don't get invested. Just write, write the best. You know, write your pilot and everything else, but don't get invested because you know the odds are against you. It's like going to Vegas, maybe worse." But it's kind of impossible to not get invested if you're a writer and once you start and then once you start getting excited about it and if it has any passion in it and it feels like something that you created, it's impossible not to get invested. Right. So generally they don't <laughs> – this is the truth. They generally – the studio – the network doesn't really normally call you directly. What the, what the studio will call – the studio will call you and tell you. And I've I, – it's a little thing that I say. If, if the studio calls you – and uh, when they get on the phone with you, their voice goes down at the end, you're in trouble. So in other words, <laughs> if you pick up the phone and your, exec- your executive goes, hi, that's bad. That's trouble. That's trouble. If they go, hi, then you're all right. I'm in. I'm in. So, uh, so that's how it happens. And it's not great. It's not great. That's for sure. Now, as you're doing all this writing, you're really not doing stand-up anymore, right? I still do it, actually. I do the Uncab. Um, I just did it like three weeks ago, and I'm doing, I think Friday night, I'm doing this thing um, at the Skirball Center that Beth Lapidus and through Uncabaret runs called, um, is it, it's not say the word, but it's, it's, it's a theme night, and this, this particular night is called I'm With a Band, and it's a music, it just has to be music-oriented stories. That's cool. So, but now, did you? Do but you, I don't go to the improv or anything. Do you like miss that it anymore. at all? I don't miss. Uh, I don't miss regular stand-up. No, I don't think that that's something that I would. Um, 
that I could say that I miss. I miss. I I like going up on stage. I mean, I do. I really like doing the the um, the on cabaret, and uh, I just did a I just did a whole hour there f- about a month and a half ago. That was all. That was just my show, which was really fun to do because that felt like headlining in a club to a certain extent. Um, but I don't miss I don't miss comedy clubs. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they're different now. Yeah, but- they are. <laughs> But I don't. I, they got to me. They really kind of got to me at the end. I I kind of. I remember when I really knew that um, I was done, and I was in a um, my friend. My friend had really talked me up to this comedy club in Rochester, New York, and got me a job. Was there. it Yuck Yucks? No, there's there there was one in Yuck Yucks. I remember I performed with Bob Summerby. He was my headliner. Oh my gosh! Uh huh. Yeah, <laughs> it might have been Yuck Yucks, but I. It was it. Is it downstairs? Yeah, and it's and and like the, like the hotels across town, and you you can't walk because it's <laughs> such a bad area. I mean, it's downtown, but back back then Rochester was a bad area, and I, I didn't want to drive because it was snowing. But everyone's like, "No, oh, you don't want to walk." I'm like, "Yeah, but it's only three blocks." They're like, "You don't want to walk." And I said, "Okay." <laughs> Can I tell you this story? <laughs> it's really pretty brutal, but I will tell it. <laughs> so I'd been, you know, I'd moved to L.A. and I was trying to get my foothold in LA and so now I was traveling on the road but I was getting on a plane in LA and flying for five hours and it was pretty brutal and I was really really feeling like I the whole reason for me to move to LA was to kind of make a transition and right. I'm not doing it so my friend worked at he was a manager at this club in Rochester and he really talked me up they did not know who I was and they had never seen me before and uh, he got me uh, the job, and it was a Friday night, and it was a very small crowd. And I was on stage, and uh, uh, <laughs> uh, this—I was doing not well. And uh, this guy in the crowd, every time I did a joke, this guy else, and I heard this guy in the crowd going, "Ha ha!" <laughs> so. I do. Oh, sorry, I do like four jokes. I hear like four ha-has, and I'm like, oh my god! So finally, I go. I just ignore it, and then he transitions from ha-ha to after every joke, he starts making a bomb sound. So he's like, it's like, <laughs> like that. So finally, I go. Uh, I go. Uh, um, I said, I go, what's the problem here? What's going on? And he goes, uh, what the problem, his girlfriend goes, the problem is you're not funny. And then he goes, and he goes, yeah, I'm funnier than you are. And I said, are you really? And he goes, yeah, I am. And I go, okay, cool. And I picked up a chair and I brought it up on stage <laughs> and I said, here, I'm going to sit down and you do the show because you're funny. So you do the show. I, by the way, I completely apologize for this. It's completely uncalled for. So I, I put the chair up there, and he's and he won't come up, and he won't come up, and um, and uh, so finally I say, "What's wrong? You don't want to do it, or whatever." And 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 and, and, and whatever, I ridicule him or say a bunch of things, and then finally I go, "Okay, let me just explain to you how this is going to work." Okay. Um, I have the microphone, so I don't have to take your shit. And he said, yeah, you don't have to take my shit because you take it up the ass. And I threw the chair in the audience. (laughs) (laughs) Did it hit anybody? No. And I said, you're out of here. You're fucking out of here. Get the fuck out of here. And he's like, and and then like these like bouncers come in or whatever, and they're like, "What's going on?" I was like, "I want that guy out of here." And here's the thing: there were thirty people there, and for some reason they couldn't find this guy that I'm pointing at in like the second row. They're like, "Who is he?" I'm like, "It's that guy right there, one fifteenth of the crowd." Yes, that guy. And uh, and they keep looking around, and they finally find him, and they start moving him out. And that the the exit to that club was like back behind this like they took him out this back so they they were taking him right past me 
and he was like, you, he was like, he was like, I want my $20 back or whatever it was. I was like, I want my money back. You're terrible. I want my money back. And I was like, you want your 20, bu- 20 bucks back? You want your 20 bucks back? And I took 20 bucks out and I threw it on the door and I go, here's your 20 bucks. You can have it if you come up here and suck my dick. <laughs> and then it's like, they push him out the door and the door slams. Boom. And I look back at like... <laughs> 25 terrified human beings. <laughs> terrified. They're terrified of me. And you, there's no way to go, all right, who's ready to have some fun now? <laughs> hey, so I'm driving so, up here today. <laughs> so here's a funny thing. Do you know what's really crazy? God, that's... It's so funny. They're like... I'm surprised I haven't heard that story because so many like the stories back then, they travel. You know, like like something like, oh, this guy hit someone with a chair and I, Rich Scheidner tells a story where he... Hit the guy with the uh, with the mic stand. You know how rich. Hey, hit the guy yeah. with the mic stand. And he tumbled, right. he tumbled back and he tumbled back, and I, and, and he just walk out. And that, like that, that's those stories go viral. Right. There's right. there's no internet now, but if it was if there was an internet now, that would have all been on. And back then, that would have all been on video. Oh, and then sure. you would have seen yourself. You'd have gotten like two million hits on sure. YouTube, and people would have been going, "Give this guy a TV deal." I know he's exactly. I know he's, I know he's a comic know. and he's writing for people, but give him a TV deal. It's like that guy. Do you remember that guy? There was video of it of the guy that that hit the guy with the guitar have you ever seen that no 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 he's he's uh it's really terrible he's a guitar act and he's playing and he's getting heckled just unmercifully and you know he does this thing you know the guy he says something to him and he says the thing about hey i don't come down to the bus station and knock the dick out of your mouth right. when you're working that beautiful that chestnut and uh, and then you see the guy stand up in the frame and and the whole audience is like oh like that and the guy on stage says come on up here motherfucker and he takes the he takes his his guitar off and he goes he swings out of frame steve and he comes back in and now the guy's out of frame and he swings like a baseball he swings that guitar like a baseball and he comes around and you don't see it make contact because the guy he's swinging at is out of frame but when the guitar comes back in the frame, it's gone. Wow. That's... All that's left is the, is the neck. Holy... So you hear this whole – and the audience is – the audience makes the sound of the, the gallery at a golf tournament when you miss the putt. Right. You know what I mean? They're all like, whoa, oh, like that. And then he's standing there and he goes – no, he's just hit this guy. I don't know what condition this guy's in. And he looks at the audience and he goes, well, I, I had no choice, right, folks? He's coming at me. And then they go, and they go, no, fuck you. That was uncalled for. And then the best part is this broken guitar that all that's left is the neck. The guy literally takes the pick and puts it into the neck thing and goes, well, show's over and walks off. It was back in the day the Dennis Miller show. We watched it a million times. We tr- actually tried to get it cleared so that we could show it on the show, but we could never do it. That's hysterical, guy. It's so funny. Well, that's just happened. Uh, when I saw it on TMZ. It was uh, some rapper or he used to be, I don't know, uh, the uh, guy who sang the song, oh, then I got high, then I got high. I think it was right. him. I'm not sure. But he was at this show and some girl jumped up on stage and he's playing his guitar and, and she hasn't even really touched him. And I think she touches him, you know, and he turns around and punches her in the <laughs> face and drops her. And then he just, and the funny thing is, he doesn't even take a beat. He just turns around and keeps playing. And then they're, they're, he's on TMZ talking to Harvey and they're, right. they're like, well, what were you thinking? Well, you know, she was, you know, security has to be better. Well, no, okay. Yeah, but you don't just punch a, a harmless woman. Right. Don't punch anyone in for that fact. But it was just, you watch it and you go, this guy he'll never get booked again yeah. and, he, and he's sitting there trying to clear his name it's like no you at least say i screwed up don't just say oh i she i was afraid she's you're afraid of five foot two 110 yeah girls exactly gonna jump on your back you're sick it's crazy so exactly <laughs> so so that was that so you never got rehired in rochester I'm no <laughs> no and my friend was trying to be so cool about it. he's like it's okay it's okay i was like no it's really not okay <laughs> I, I literally said to him i need to get off the road i that's that is a bad sign so now you also, because we have about 15 minutes left. I want to, uh, sucks because I wish, do, do you want to hang around for another hour or do you have to go? 
Uh, <laughs> I'm joking. You have so much I want to talk about, and my other guests canceled. But uh, no, because I the comeback I love. And well, we'll third, and you work for Will and Grace. Third, we'll talk about Thirty Rock for less than minutes. Okay. Okay. So you work for you work for work Bernie Mac and Will and Grace, and then you know how did Thirty Rock come up? And was did you come in in the very beginning? Well, you met Tina, and did you did you think it would be such a? I mean, well, it's Tina connected, so I'm sure you knew it would be a hit. But did you think it would just be just such a popular and just big hit show because the other time there was another show that tried to be like 30 rock that just disappeared right studio 60 right um yeah no um i what happened was that year i tried to i was not i was just out looking for a show and I went out on a bunch of sort of like, okay, let me go see if I want to work on the show or co-show or co-run the show or whatever. And the shows were so bad that year. The pilots were so bad. I remember specifically, I went to see a pilot at Disney. And the way they do this is you go, basically you go and you meet the producers or whatever. Then normally what they do is they take you to your room. They show you the pilot. You sit in there and watch the pilot by yourself. And when the pilot's over, they come back and get you. And then you talk to the producers a little bit more. So I went in, I met these guys, nice enough guys. They're like, okay, you want to see the pilot? Sure. Take me down to this room at Disney. Put me in the room. This pilot stops. It's dreadful. It's terrible. About halfway through it, I'm just sitting here going, I can't do it. I can't do it again. I can't walk into that room and pay a ston a plastic smile and say, oh, it was so funny and, you know, make up a bunch of bullshit. So the the pilot ends and they don't come to get me. Like, I don't know if they got a phone car or whatever. And I literally, my hand to God is the true story. I ran to my car and left. I never went back. I, I don't, I'm sure they have no idea to this day what the hell happened to me because I was like, I mean, for all I know, I might've ran right by their window, like right by their window of their office. But I ran in my car cause I was like, I can't do it. So, I mean, I literally went to, um, the West wing because Aaron, Sorkin had just left the West Wing and John Wells wanted to like infuse some humor into it. So they were talking to comedy writers. So it was a very uh, uh, tough season for me. And the only show that was kind of out there was the show Ugly Betty. Ugly Betty had also started. And Ugly Betty was the hot show, was going to be the hot show. And my agents and my managers were like, you really should do Ugly Betty because they want you to run it with Silvio. And Silvio really likes you and whatever. But Ugly Betty just wasn't for me. And so there was one thing left. And it was at the time, it was called the Untitled Tina Fey Project. And I went to Universal, and I saw it. And I, and I said to Tina, and, to this, and it's the truth, I watched that pilot, and the moment I said to myself, I want to work on this show, was when uh, Tina is Liz, uh, Alec Baldwin is Jack Donaghy, says to her, you need to go up to Harlem and talk to Tracy Morgan Tracy Jordan and get him to be on this show, but don't go dress like that. Go down to wardrobe and put on something that's appropriate. And she comes back and she's in this two-piece pink ladies suit that Tom Broker, who was our costume guy, who was perfect. It was just enough. It was it was so wrong for Liz Lemon, but yet a woman would actually wear that. Okay. And and Alec looked at her and said, as Jack, and said, now, you should dress like that every day. And she, and she said, yeah, if I was the president of the Philippines. And I was like, I want to work on this show. We had no idea, though. When you talk about it being a hit, we had no idea. We were such the underdog, and we were so underneath the radar that I literally thought, it's 13 and we're done. And I think we all thought that. Why? Just because you thought it was the crowd wouldn't get it, or why did you think it would be just because every all the press was about Studio sixty, all the press was about Aaron Sorkin writing this show about the late night talk show. We were the underdog show. Um, you know, our numbers were never great. Um, and even at Christmas time, I remember, I remember we were going to go on Christmas break, and we hadn't gotten the order for the back nine yet. And I set an intern out for like Christmas cookies and stuff because I was like, this might be it. We might be saying goodbye to each other after the end of this week. Um, so we didn't know at all. And then, of course, we won the Emmy our freshman year. And then, of course, we knew what was going on. But like we knew the show was good. 
Like I loved the show from the moment we started shooting it. And it reminded me it was a very it was another very Larry Sanders experience because I was working with Alec Baldwin and watching that guy act and thinking to myself, you don't see this on regular sitcoms. But I didn't know it was gonna be a huge hit at the time. I don't and I, I think even Tina would say that. Well it's weird because also uh Tracy Morgan. I mean, just you know, I T. Sean Shannon wrote for him and said, you know, it was like it was like being on like a a roller coaster. Like when he was for SNL, like you know, you're on a crazy rabbit. You know, you'd be fine. And he's just, I mean, writing for him, he just he's he's one of those guys who just he would go on Letterman and make no sense, but it was just so damn funny. Yeah, he's the nicest, one of the nicest people. No ego. You know, Tracy's one of those guys that if you say to him. You know, when I when I would direct the show, um, I would go up to him and I'd say, I'd say, you know, because you never just want to say to an actor, do this. And I'd say, hey, Trey, you know, maybe you're trying this thing. And if I do it three or four times, he would just look at me and go, Reed, just how, how should I say it? Just right. tell me how to say it. And he <laughs> didn't care. He just was like, let's just do the work. You know what I mean? I loved him. I loved him. I, I think he's... He was absolutely one of my favorites and and worked really hard and and is a really, really good guy. He's a solid human being. Now, how did you parlay into directing? Because I know that, you know, I mean, because you went from stand-up to writing to producing to running, you know, now how did the directing start? And when, when did that start for you? Um, for me, I, for whatever reason, I've done a lot of single camera work, which is, you know, television shows without an audience basically and and they're shot like little movies like we shoot five days a week and we shoot 12 hour days um and for whatever reason from the from larry sanders on i've always wound up being on the floor a lot like they always like to have a writer down there and uh to represent the writing department and if there are any questions from the actors or if something needs to be adjusted or something like that and i started getting sent down there a lot and then I started really watching how a show was shot and I got really interested in cameras and, and, and how you shoot a show and how you direct a show and working with actors. And I like being with people. And, and so I had directed one, I had directed two other episodic things. I had two half hour episodes of stuff under my belt and my second, my third season of, 30 rock i when we were renegotiating i was like i want to i want to direct an episode and i got my first episode and we went and we had a table read and um and tina and i were getting food and it was is very much this just explains in many ways our relationship but um, it was very much like the the way we are sometimes with each other. Is I went up to get food and I was looking down at the food and she was right next to me looking down at the food and we were putting food on our plate and we didn't make eye contact. And I said, uh, T, I just want you to know I'm not going to fuck this up. And she said, yeah, I know you won't, Reggie. But we never looked at each other. That's it was funny. all just kind of like... And basically, the the undercurrent of it was, let's hope not. Right. Let's hope you don't fuck it up. <laughs> um, but I started directing it, and then I just had a really good time with it, and I loved, I loved it. I liked working with the actors, and I like cameras. And the best thing about Thirty Rock for a director was sometimes. The the uh, the the great thing about being a writer and a director on that show is no one ever told us no. Okay. So we could do whatever we wanted, but that also meant that you would get a script and you'd think to yourself, "Oh my God, how do I shoot this?" Like one time, I shot an episode where uh, Jane's character was pretending like she was having a nervous breakdown, and she went on the Today Show and jumped through the glass window behind the home home base desk, and that was in the script. Jane jumps through the glass at the today show or Jen, jenna does and i was like okay let's figure it out and then i went to the today show and we i came up with a way to shoot it and we put it together and it was incredibly scary because i didn't know if it was really going to work and honestly even the even my team of like people that i was with were like yeah yeah i think that's right <laughs> 
but we didn't know. And, uh, but that was really fun because it was just like, it was just like everybody would be like, you know, they just would let you do whatever you wanted. Like you could just, like you could just, um, like the first one I directed, I wanted it, I wanted it to be like a rom-com. It was about, uh, Tina, Liz had gotten uh, this, she had the, uh, deal breakers book and she was going to shop it around in other places and not do it with Jack and Jack just assumed he'd produce it. And so they had a little fight because she was going to go try to like produce it with somebody else. And at the end they met on the plaza at 30 rock and it said in the script, they Jack and Liz run towards each other like in a rom-com. And just off of that line, I was like, I want it to be like a rom-com. So I had the guys, build me this we put them on this big giant turntable and spun them around and we had never done anything like that before but like the my my crew was so great and i had such a good relationship with like grips and stuff that they were willing to do it so it was always fun it must get you nervous though because you want it to go well i mean and you have those people depending on you and it's like anything you know it's like you you want it to go well and it yeah. must be crazy. So we have a few minutes left. Uh, what's coming up now? You uh, have any shows coming out, or I know you're working away? Well, I'm working on a, a movie right now that I'm doing with Liz Banks and, and her company, uh, Brownstone, uh, which hopefully we will sell, and then I will talk more about it. And then, um, uh, you know, I'm getting ready to do go back into the new development season, which will start late in the summer. And um, and that's it, really, right now. Now, do you tweet? Or you, do you tweet a lot? Yes, because I think I follow you on Twitter. I had I'm reached out Twitter. to you on Twitter first, then yes, I, and then I saw. Yes. I don't know how I got in touch with you again. I think Facebook. I, found, I think. yeah, I found you on Facebook because I always you know just things you reach out to someone and people get busy, and then I sit there and I'm one of those people that I like I'll send a message to someone on Facebook. And then I'll sit there and I'll go, God, whatever. I ne- they said they might do it, but never I got back to them. And then I look and it's been like a year. And right. I go, okay, I can do it now. Because it's like, I'm sure some people sit there and send all the time. And to me, I'm just like, that's so annoying. I do it. Like, you know, I get enough guests, but I said, I'd like to have them. So I want to, and so what's your, what's your Twitter? What's, what, do you, what do you tweet? What's, what's at, is it at John Regi? It's at, uh, it's Regi Robot. Now, how, how did you get that name? I love robots. Do you really? Yes. I said one time, Robert Carlock told me this was the saddest thing he'd ever heard anyone say in the writer's room, but my mom and dad were divorced. And I said one time that it went, I, I wish that the robot in Lost in Space was my dad. <laughs> I just, I went to a Hollywood show with my friends and it was a Lost in Space reunion and the robot was there. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God. And I was just, as for a kid, you just remember, Will Robinson, you yeah. just remember that stuff. No, I love robots. So I don't know. So it's Regi Robot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, and so people uh, check out check out his work. Go to IMDb; it's very impressive, and you can see a lot of his shows he's worked on. And you know what you do if you have Netflix? You look at one of the shows, and you go, "I want to watch that" because I do it all the time. Like I have a guest, like oh, I was on season three of Miami Vice, so I Google season three of Miami Vice, whatever episode, yeah. and then you can go see it. So people go, you know, he talked about the. Do you remember what was the title of the one where she jumped through the window? Uh, it, oh, do I remember? don't know. Well, just go look and say. 30 Rock, jump through the window, and that will work. Jenna jumps through the window. Anyway, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Steve. Uh, follow him at Rigi, at Rigi Robot, R-I-G-G-I-R-O-B-O-T. Also, if you want, you can follow me at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I tweet a lot, and uh, that's my Twitter handle. Also, my website is coopertalk.net. I have about 360 episodes up there from the very beginning, not from the beginning, but towards the beginning and you can also uh, email me there through there cooper at coopertalk.net I'll always respond to you guys iTunes and Stitchers same thing type in coopertalk one word and that's good to go and also don't forget my other website the, the project I did that's very dear to my heart it's uh, my cookbook stopthesalt.com low sodium cooking for one without killing yourself go to stopthesalt.com as you know when I had my health problems a few years ago I had to completely completely change my diet so I went and wrote a cookbook it's 120 recipes there's no pictures because I know pictures intimidate guys. When you look at a really nice picture, you go, I can't cook that. And you don't want to cook it. And there's not all those ingredients because I have a nice spice rack at home, but I'll look at the recipes and go, I don't have cumin. I don't have this. So it's all basic stuff. They're cooking for one, you know, especially if you guys are divorced. I hate to say it, but if you're divorced or, you know, if you're single and you're, you want to eat healthy, you have to because it's very important and sodium is killing us, all the high blood pressure and stuff like that. So go get that. You can get it on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. Just type in Steve Cooper, Stop the Salt, or you can go to my website, stopthesalt.com. 
Amazon.com. Same price, same shipping. I make more money if you go to my website. So why don't you do that? And I'll even sign it for you. So do that. And uh, yeah, so John, I just want to thank you. I, I, we have like 30 seconds left. And uh, this sucks because I, I, I want to get, you've also wrote for the comeback. Yes. And which is, just came back, which yes. is great. And this HBO Go. And uh, Will, Will and Grace. And so it's, you've yeah. written for a lot. You've had, you must be happy about your career. Yeah. From playing. I can't complain. The club in Cincinnati. Yes. <laughs> to coming out here. And also, uh, when you're at, on Cabaret, it's on the website probably. Yes. And so you, he may come back again. So go see him. And uh, yeah, it's Regi Robot um, Cooper at coopertalk.net. Please email me. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. You guys have a wonderful weekend and come back next week and I'll have a brand new round of guests and listen to my past episodes and I will talk to you soon.